And here in the 11 to 99-year-olds class, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 this morning. You may remember just a while back that uh, Pastor Bobby Blakey came and from Huntington Beach, from Compass Bible Church of Huntington Beach, came and brought the word to us this morning. We have the opportunity to return the favor. Uh, our pastor, Andrew, is there bringing the word to their congregation, so you can uh, pray for him there and uh, pray for their congregation to be richly bl- blessed as he brings the word to them, as we so often are when he brings it to us. When I was a kid, I lived in upstate New York. We had a place just right down the street from us that uh, I just checked on Google Maps is still there called Abbott's Ice Cream. And it is one of the few things that I remember from my childhood because I was just little when we lived there. Of course, I'd remember the ice cream shop. Uh, Mom and dad would take us there and me and my brother Chris always ordered the same thing chocolate in a cone with rainbow sprinkles and a dish in case it melts, which inevitably as a kid, you just can't eat that thing fast enough. So it, it always did. It always seemed really sad to me when you're a kid and your ice cream is like melting faster than you can eat it. Do you remember this feeling as a kid? It was like, we look back on that as adults, like it's kind of funny, but as a kid, it's kind of a rough nightmare. Uh, What's even worse is when, as like a, you know, six or seven-year-old boy who can't sit still with his brothers when you just got ice cream, you partake in some kind of a movement which results in your ice cream falling off the cone and into the gravel. Now, that's just like heartbreaking. Uh, But in all seriousness, um, one of my aunts died very young And I'll never forget some of her last words were, it's like when your ice cream is melting too fast all over the cone and you can't stop it. I think it just kind of captures the the sadness that we often face in life. This world is full of trouble, full of difficulty. Some of the most painful, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking difficulties come from the challenges that we face with other people, friends even, enemies, sometimes leaders, sometimes loved ones. People attack, sometimes with missiles, sometimes with mouths. In this cursed world, seems that we're full of metaphoric and actual daggers, swords, and darkness. Sometimes words harm us more than we feel anything could on the outside. There are some from whom we expect this kind of difficulty and opposition, enemies. There are some who shouldn't disappoint us who do. Friends, family, There are even some over us whose responsibility is to care for us, but instead they harm us. Government, husbands, homeowners associations, (laughs) 
sometimes even pastors. There are difficult realities in this life, and Christians ought not to be people who, all, who always pretend that all was well in this world. We know better. We can't walk around just putting on our best Mary Poppins smile and say everything is fine when life feels more like saving Private Ryan sometimes. We of all people have answers. We don't have to pretend everything's okay. We know that in spite of the fact that it doesn't appear to be okay, it is okay. We have firm and fixed, resolute convictions that tether us to hope. So we can, we can look evil in the face with confidence in victory, and that is why we're in Psalm 118 this morning. We're going to watch the psalmist win a staring contest with the enemy. He does so in the midst of the darkness. He does so with a song, a worship service, as it will. So we'll listen to his words and gleam from them and learn to sing in the darkness, as it were. By way of spoiler warning, I'll just say to you, even when you are betrayed by those who are close to you, those who should love you and care for you, but instead turn on you, the Lord is going to keep his word to you. Psalm 111 through 118 are known as the Hallel Psalms. It's where we get the word hallelujah, uh, literally to pray, the, the praise Psalms. We say hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, these Psalms are those which were sung during the week of Passover in ancient times. In fact, in Jesus' life on earth, during the Passover, they were singing through these psalms. And during the Passover meal, immediately after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, Matthew says in Matthew 26, 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that would have been the last hymn that our Savior sang on earth together with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified. And scholars agree that based on the fact that it was the Hallel hymns that they sang through on Passover, and Psalm 118 is the last of those, uh, scholars agree it would have been Psalm 118 that our Savior sang with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. So as we look at this psalm, brings special meaning to it for us as we think about those who betray us. And first, I want to look together at the theme of the call to worship in verses 1 through 4. You know, in our Sunday morning gathering, Pastor Josh just did it, we begin with a call to worship. The call to worship is a traditional introduction to our gathering in which the service leader calls us all together to worship and to set the tone for the morning, to introduce the theme for the morning. Psalm 118 begins with a call to worship, just like that. Take a look at it in verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So there's a clear and repetitive theme here. His steadfast love endures forever. The first psalm in, so we find, we recognize the psalms are categorized into five books. There are five books within the psalms, and uh, 
Uh, The book five is Psalm 107 through 150. The first psalm in book five then is 107, and it has the same start as this psalm, 118, which finds itself in book five. This is a recurring theme. If you look over just a couple of pages at uh, Psalm 107, you'll see it begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the first words of Psalm 118 and the last words of Psalm 118 are also the same, bookends as it were. The, the introduction to the service and the conclusion are the same message. Look down at Psalm 118 verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And I know what you're wondering. I thought this was a psalm about responding rightly when life is hard and we're attacked by people. What's interesting is, listen to the words that permeate the middle of this psalm. Verse 5, my distress. Verse 6, fear. Verse 7, those who hate me. Verse 10, all nations surround me. Verse 11, they surround me on every side. Verse 12, surrounded me like bees. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. That doesn't sound like hopeful circumstances. In many ways, this psalm is highlighting just that. There is hope amidst seemingly hopeless circumstances, and that contrast is where we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 118. And I I think we can learn a lot from the psalmist when we recognize that in a psalm where he is testifying to those who hate me, he begins by rehearsing the truth about the God who loves me. We do well to remind ourselves of God's love often as believers. Sometimes we imagine God sitting in heaven with His arms crossed, waiting for us to mess up so He can bop us on the head. The God of Scripture is repeatedly pictured as a God of love. God is love. So we do well to remind ourselves of God's love often. It it fortifies us against those who hate us because the the hate of finite men cannot penetrate the infinite armor of God's love. So the psalmist begins with just that, and it's a call to action, really, right? This is a, a call, oh, give thanks to the Lord. So when we find ourselves in the midst of opposition from people around us, let's think about talking to ourselves and our friends this way. Give thanks to the Lord. Express gratitude to the God who made you for two reasons He gives, for He is good. And in the context of this psalm, that's wonderful because His moral uprightness means He will always know the right thing to do for you. He is good. The second reason to give thanks to the Lord, for His steadfast love endures forever. In the context of this psalm, that's amazing because His love means that He wants to do what is good for you. He is morally good, so He always knows exactly the right thing to do for you, and His steadfast love endures forever, so He wants to do the right thing for you. And that steadfast love will never stop existing. So that's the introduction. That is the the call to worship, as it were, kind of setting the theme for this psalm. 
And now we'll look at verses 5 through 18 where we'll see the, the person, personal testimony of distress. It's almost like the worship service has begun and then the psalmist walks to the pulpit and gives a personal testimony of how the Lord helped him in his distress. Verse 5, he says, Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. And that's the, <laughs> I thought about going to other places in the Psalms where these, this kind of language is used, and the reality is it would have taken up all of the rest of our time together this morning. This is just the pervasive language of the Psalms, the, the primary theme of this Psalm. When I was in distress, I called on the Lord, and He answered me. He saved me. Now, He elaborates on that with a new refrain, a new repetition here. Look at verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So in the midst of hatred and opposition, men who want to do harmful things to him, he says, the Lord is on my side. He is my helper. In the midst of hatred, which tempts him to fear, because the Lord is on his side, he has a confidence that in the end, he will look in triumph on those who appear to be winning right now. Now, verse 8, the next verse, you'll hear people say, Psalm 118, 8 is the center verse of the Bible. If you count them all up, this one is the one in the very middle, Psalm 118, 8. And that's true. Just some fun facts on that for you here. Uh, Psalm 117, right before this, is the shortest psalm in the Psalter. And Psalm 119, right after this, is the longest psalm in the Psalter. And then right here in the middle, you have Psalm 118, and 118.8 is the center verse in the entire Bible. And if you hold it up to the sunlight and you let the beam shine through onto the map, and then you grab Benjamin Franklin's glasses and look at it, I'm just kidding. What I mean simply is don't put too much trust in number systems and mystical ways to look at the Bible. Uh, what's funny is, while, while this is, if you add up the numbers, which were added in the 13th century, not when the, gospel, not when the writers wrote the Bible, uh, you add up the numbers of the verses in our English Bible, Psalm 118.8 is the, the one that's in the middle. Now, ironically, it's not in the middle of Psalm 118, but Psalm 118 is a chiasm which has a poetic structure that points to the very center and the very purpose and meaning of the psalm and the main theme, and it's not verse 8. So just be careful when people start telling you about numerical systems for interpreting the Bible and ways to find secret things, and just be careful. But being in the Bible, it is still true and precious to us. Verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There is a principle to live by here. It's fine to trust people. Relationships require a certain level of trust. But we have to let our ultimate trust, let our ultimate refuge be the Lord. Not other people. Not our leaders. Not our spouses. Not our children. People will ultimately let us down. They're sinful just like we are. We will let other people down. So all of us have to have our ultimate trust. Our ultimate refuge must be the Lord, 
who is faithful, who will never let us down. So that when the tightrope of trust in men snaps, there is a safety net. And you will never be disappointed by him. Verse 8 says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And verse 9 just kind of takes it up a notch, like even princes. It's better to trust in the Lord than men, even princes. I know this is going to be hard for many of you to believe, but the president may let you down. Seriously, though, uh, your church leaders may let you down. Your spouse may let you down. The Lord God Almighty who rules and reigns forever with a perfect love will never, not one single time in all of your life and in all of eternity, ever let you down. We saw in verses 5 through 9, he proclaims his trust in the Lord amidst difficulty. And then in verses 10 through 12, he explains the results. The Lord gives him victory in the battle. Now, I want you to watch as we read verses 10, 11, and 12. I want you to pay attention for the staircase parallelism here. Now, that sounds like something you need a prescription for. It's actually Hebrew poetic structure, something referred to as also known as incremental repetition. In other words, I'm going to say the same thing, but each time I'm going to build on it. We saw a little bit of that in these verses, right? It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes, He's going to do the same thing now here as he describes the distress he's in and the victory that the Lord gives him. In this poetic form, each line repeats and builds on the previous one, kind of intensifying the thought. So listen to it. Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So that is the psalmist's personal testimony of his distress. And here we have this poetic representation of the way our distress often feels, doesn't it? It feels like it's getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse. He says three times, in the name of the Lord. How did he achieve victory? by trusting in God's ways, in the name of the Lord. It's a good reminder, we fight these battles God's way, not our way. When we are opposed by men, it is so tempting to do the first five things that come to mind, which is probably the last thing that we should do. We want to get back at them. We want to prove how wrong they are. We want to do to them the same thing they did to us. We want to talk to everybody else about how bad they are. We want to make sure to get ahead of them before they slander us to those people. We're going to go and let people know how bad they are so that when they get to those people, we come up with all of these ideas for how to fight against people who are fighting against us. It's a good reminder that God's way is counterintuitive, but our way is often counterproductive. Here he says, nations surrounded him. In the name of the Lord, he cut them off. Three times he tells us the result again, I cut them off. In other words, he had victory. He won the battle. Because he followed God's ways, he had victory over those who opposed him. This is, I I cut them off without going into great detail here, FYI. This is the Hebrew verb for circumcision. So I, I think he means this metaphorically, but he means he really beat them. 
right? You get it? Like, he really beat them. I cut them off. And if you understand circumcision in the Old Testament context, too, this has some basic connotations that could even possibly mean something like he preached the gospel to them and they got saved. He, he, he made them a part of, he, he had victory over them ultimately by making them a part of God's people. I'm not alone here. A lot of scholars think that that could be what he's talking about. It's a good reminder, sometimes our victory comes when those who oppose us are radically transformed by the gospel and become our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we began with a call to worship. Then we saw the psalmist's personal testimony of distress. In the next session, we'll see the central message of hope. So there's kind of five sections in this psalm, and the the third here is the center of the psalm and the, the central message of hope in verses 13 through 18. This is one more argument to ignore the whole count the verses in the Bible nonsense is that Psalm 118 has a structure to it and the poetic structure of the other verses known as a chiasm all point to this middle portion which is also a chiasm pointing to an actual middle verse and we'll get to that. It's highlighting the primary message of the psalm here. In the previous portion of the psalm we saw the difficulty and opposition the psalmist is facing. In the next one after this we're going to see the ultimate vindication and hope But here in the middle, in verses 13 through 18, it's like the psalmist brings those two things together and highlights the great hope that we have in God's sovereign goodness amidst our difficulty and opposition. He says in verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And you can see those two themes coming together here, right? Great difficulty. I don't know if you've ever been pushed, right? There's a push and then there's a push, right? Someone can shove you a little and it makes you step back. Here he says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. There's great difficulty, but also great hope. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Remember, the, the, the progression here is moving towards the middle, and verses 15 and 16 is the dead center and primary emphasis of this psalm. Here you go. Verses 15 and 16, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Here's the very center. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This right hand of the Lord is a a symbol of God's sovereignty, His strength, His ability to work on behalf of His people. And remember the first and last verses of this psalm, right? Give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. And here you have the right hand of the Lord, so we have His goodness and unfailing love as the, the frames of this psalm, and then the dead center of it is the sovereignty of God. God is ultimately good, and He is ultimately loving, and He is ultimately in control of everything. When you bring those together, you get things like Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him. So we can say with Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, 
what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God is unfailingly good and loving and unfailingly powerful, we can trust that amidst great difficulty and opposition, He will make the bad good on our behalf. Now, we don't often see how that works, but because we know who He is, we trust that's exactly what He does. In other words, when we hold God's goodness in one hand, His his good, moral, upright character and His love, and we hold His sovereignty in the other hand, we can stare into the reddest eyes that are against us and have confidence that we will have the victory. It is that confidence that drives the psalmist's words in the next verses. Verse 17 I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. See, the the psalmist has a confidence in his circumstances that he would succeed temporally, but he also understands that difficulty in this life cannot ultimately kill us because the Lord preserves our souls. Fear not them who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. We will ultimately live to tell of the deeds of the Lord. As we go through difficulty, it's like the psalmist is in the midst of it and he's saying, on the other side of this thing, man, I am going to talk about how God did so much good through this. I don't know how yet, but when I get there, You're going to hear it from me. I will tell of the deeds of the Lord, how he intercepted the dagger flung at me by the evil one and turned its course to cut the bonds of my sadness, how he turned the wrongful imprisonment of Joseph into salvation for the nation, how he turned the imprisonment of Paul into salvation for the Philippian jailer and a new church plant in Philippi, how he turned the dark, deep waters of the Red Sea into a path of glorious rescue. How he turned the sword of Satan swung at our necks and instead slay our foe with his own weapon at the cross. And oh, how we see the cross in this. And that is what this psalm turns to now. As it continues, it becomes obviously messianic in the next section and prophetic and in its poetic anticipation of the coming Messiah. And Jewish scholars, before the time of Jesus, recognized this section as being messianic. All four gospel writers, when recording the life of Jesus, quoted this psalm, showing how it refers to the life of Jesus. And the song now transitions into this next section, this picture of corporate worship much of which anticipates the day that we now await when Jesus Christ will ultimately lead his people out of the suffering of this world and into the new Jerusalem. So look at verses 19 through 27 with me, the the anticipation of corporate worship. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Give thanks to the Lord. We understand this to be referring to to the gates of the temple This harkens back to the question of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord 
who may be found in his holy place? Well, the answer of those psalms is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So that's not us. None of us. Because it says you have to be perfect. You have to be righteous. But note this. While verse 19 says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. In verse 20, it appears that this one person is bringing other people with him. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous, plural, shall enter through it. So there is an individual who's going to lead all of the righteous through the gates of the new temple one day. And who is this? Well, we know. And we'll continue to see in these next verses, this is ultimately Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. Verse 21 says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now, is this Jesus saying to God the Father, I thank you that you've answered me and opened the gates of the temple? Or is this the people following him saying to him, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation? Scholars are divided on this. Guess what? Both are true. (laughs) Either way, you land either way, both of those are true. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That sounds very familiar to us because... It's quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. In Mark 12, this psalm is quoted by Jesus himself. To the chief priests, listen to this, Mark 12 says, he says it, to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders in the temple in Jerusalem. And it even says they knew exactly what he meant when he told it, and they knew that he meant it against them. When he said, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The religious leaders in the temple did reject Jesus. They ultimately crucified him. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. Guess what? Peter found himself back in the same temple again, in the same place that Jesus had said that. And after healing a lame man in the name of Jesus, they started questioning Peter. They didn't like what he was doing. And Acts 4 records that Peter was speaking to the rulers and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem. And guess what he says? Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." And we know that is because when they rejected him and he was crucified on the cross, it was there that God the Father poured out his wrath against the sin of all who would believe in Jesus Christ. So that by turning from our sin and putting our trust in the cornerstone, in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf on the cross, by trusting in him for our salvation, we are forgiven. We are saved. We will one day follow him into the new Jerusalem. We get the picture, right? When it talks about the the cornerstone, it's the most important stone in a building laid first, and then all of the other stones laid off of the cornerstone based on its placement. 
The picture here is that the builders are kind of looking through the stones, and they're like, ah, look at this horrible stone. This one is ugly. We aren't using this stone in our temple. Put it over there. So they put it aside. They're working on their temple. They turn around, and God has built another temple. God changed things up on them. He he built a temple over here on the stone that they rejected, using it as the cornerstone. Let us turn our attention to the cross then. Let us speak of our Savior who sang this psalm on the night he was betrayed. He sang, verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And he sang it with 11 men who would turn their backs on him in just a few hours during his greatest suffering. Only 11 of them because one had already fled into the darkness to betray him. But he took refuge in his Father, the Lord, and his Father, our God, took the darkest day on earth and the agonizing death of his own son by the hands of ignorant fools who rejected the cornerstone under the curse of sin and the weight of the wrath of God, and he intercepted the dagger. He spun the sword. He turned the darkness into the brightest moment in all of history that blossomed into a stone rolled away and an empty tomb, and a risen Savior, and a new age for a saved people celebrating the dawn of salvation and following their King who will lead them in victory out of suffering and into the new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, when God saved you out of the penalty of sin, when He justified you, He saved you individually. But then He puts us together with the church, His people, And when he saves us from the presence of sin into eternity, when we are glorified, he will save us corporately. And we will exalt around the throne together with the children of God from thousands of years of history. And in this picture in the Bible, with Jesus as the cornerstone, we are the other stones also rejected by men. But in spite of their rejection, honored by God as he uses us, to build a new temple. That's exactly how Peter understood this in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 7. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let them attack us. Let them heap shame upon us. Let them mock us. Let them tell us how wrong we are. And even if they're right that we're guilty and sinful and broken, we have a God who has made a way into His presence for broken, sinful, guilty people. So let them condemn us. We'll agree with them. You're right. We're sinners. Our God has made a way for sinners to be made right with Him. 
In the 17th century, the renowned Italian astronomer had his name dragged through the mud by the Catholic Church. You're familiar with the name of Galileo. Why did they drag his name through the mud? Why did they ruin his reputation? Because he had the audacity to suggest that the solar system revolves around the sun. He faced public criticism and ridicule. In 1663, Galileo was placed on trial by the Catholic Church, found guilty, and placed on house arrest for the remainder of his life. But in the end, Galileo was vindicated by the truth, wasn't he? His works became such a prominent foundation for modern science that in 1992, the Catholic Church was forced to admit that they were wrong about Galileo. It only took them 300-something years to notice. But Galileo was right all along, regardless of their opinion of him. Friends, as we stand for the truth, as we walk with our God, we will face opposition in this life. But regardless of what they say, we know the truth. We may be opposed. We may face public criticism and ridicule. It may come from those who ought to care for us and love us. But in the end, as a child of God, Time and truth will vindicate us. Back in Psalm 118, this is why the people say in verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, just to clarify, remember that this is the, this is the corporate gathering marching into the new Jerusalem, being led by Jesus Christ, saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So it's not like a random day. It's a specific day in the future when Jesus will lead his people into the new Jerusalem, into the new temple in victory. So we, you can still say, Today is the day that the Lord has made and we should rejoice and be glad. That's true because God did make today and we should rejoice and be glad. As long as we know that in Psalm 118, that's not exactly what's happening. They're talking about a specific day. Back down to those who anticipate this day, perhaps singing in the temple, anticipating the day when they'll follow the Savior into the new Jerusalem, perhaps singing around the table with our Lord. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And you're starting to notice how much of this you're familiar with because you've seen it in the New Testament. The words in verse 25, save us, we pray, Yahweh, Yahweh, we pray, give us success. It's, it's very rhythmic and repetitive in the Hebrew. It's very memorable. This is exactly why the people chanted this as Jesus was entering Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. In Mark 11, 8 through 10, it says, many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread palm branches, a symbol of victory that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, that is, save us in the Hebrew. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You'll notice the people in Jesus' day expected that that was the time for him to lead them into the new temple. They're like, let's go. It's time. They understood what this prophesied. And they looked at Jesus and said, this is the guy. He's going to be the one to lead us. Let's go. We're all behind you, Jesus. You kind of want to be like, guys, your heart's in the right place. Not just yet. That's not exactly right now. Just a little premature. What they don't realize is, as they say this to Jesus, in a strange twist of sovereignty, the very next verses prophesy his death. Verse 27, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And everyone studying the Gospel of John right now says, I know who the light is, and I know who the sacrifice is. Revelation 7, 9 through 17 looks ahead to a day when the people of God will again hold palm branches. John, seeing into the future in heaven, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Notice in this psalm, it was the nations who were against him. And now in Revelation, we fast forward to the future, and it is the nations who worship together with him. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we see this incredible picture in the future of all the nations gathered together, finally with palm branches in the right moment, gathered around the throne. And that is in many ways the, the theme of this moment of corporate worship this sense of anticipation for the day. The, the Jews in Jesus' day felt it and looked forward to it and even hoped that it was right then. Now, finally, we'll look at the theme of the conclusion. After his personal testimony, after the corporate worship, the psalmist ret returns again to the pulpit to give the conclusion to their worship service. Verse 28 you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Again, framing the psalmist's distress and circumstances that he's been talking about throughout the psalm are the Lord's love and his goodness at both the beginning and the end and right in the center, we saw God's sovereign power, the, the right hand of the Lord. His goodness and infinite love mean that we can trust that all things will work together for our good. My first bachelor's degree, I was an art major studying digital design, commercial art, and advertising. And my, art, my wife was an art minor. So when Claire and I were dating, we spent a lot of time around the Houston area where we lived at the time, visiting various museums and such. One such place is the Manil Collection, which is magnificent. 
One part of the Manila collection, though, is the Rothko Chapel, an octagonal chapel with massive paintings on eight walls, custom painted for this space by Mark Rothko, some of whose paintings have sold for upwards of $87 million. Now, here's the thing. You walk in and you realize that you're looking at eight walls of massive black paintings. Just black. Just black. These huge canvases of foreboding black on all eight sides, all the way around you, you turn and look and you see nothing but black canvases. I don't know if you've ever stood in an opulent museum kind of scratching your head while you look at a painting that appears to have been done by a five-year-old. Like, really? Okay. These paintings in the Rothko Chapel are, I'm sorry, they're ugly. It's just simply a dark palette. As you look closer, there's some, some nuances to the black. There's like lighter black and darker black. But you stand there and you're kind of like, I don't understand. How is this priceless art? How is this beautiful? What are, we, what are we doing here? You kind of have to remind yourself of where you are because immediately you walk in and you're like, uh, okay, let's get out of here. You know, like, you've been in there like two seconds, you're like, uh, I think I've seen it all. But you kind of remind yourself of where you are, like, okay, I'm in a massive octagonal chapel. This is the illustrious Manil collection. I know the reputation of Mark Rothko. Okay, so somehow this is good art. There's just something I don't understand, right? And so you stand there, pondering, thinking about what exactly was he trying to accomplish here. And as it turns out, that is actually exactly what he was trying to accomplish. He wanted you to stand and just think about, how is this good? Because he believed that, and Mark Rothko probably wasn't a believer, but he believed that by standing there pondering how this is good, it would have a, a calming and positive effect in your life, and that's what he wanted. So you recognize, okay, somehow this is good art. There's just something I don't know yet, something I don't understand, and I just think life can be that way sometimes, and we can be honest about that. Sometimes we look at our circumstances and, and we're like, this is just black. Like maybe there's some nuances of black, but it just feels black. The attacks from other people paint a dark palette across the canvas of our lives sometimes, and we look at it and we honestly think, how is this good? But like the psalmist, we can have confidence that though this appears ugly to me, there's just a lot I don't know yet. There's a lot I don't understand. There is a hopeful future where all of this will make more sense. So although the palette is dark and foreboding, because it is framed by the goodness of God, you have to remind yourself of the goodness of God, that this is in the context of the infinite love of God, that there is hope of a messianic promise and a future. Because of that, I can look at the darkest of canvases in my life 
and have great confidence. I might not understand it yet, but this is going to turn out for my good. This is going to be good. And I trust that ultimately He will return and rescue and redeem us together. And we will enter the new Jerusalem following our Messiah. And He will wipe away every tear and make everything right. Father, that is our great hope and anticipation, even along with the psalmist. We rejoice in your goodness to us. We rejoice that your steadfast love endures forever. It is our hope that your steadfast love endures forever. God, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of opposition from other people, when they cast insults at us, when we feel the hatred of others coming in our direction, Lord, let us remind ourselves that your steadfast love endures forever, that your right hand does valiantly. Your right hand exalts. Lord, your right hand does valiantly. You cause all things, even the darkest of our circumstances, to work together for our good. And we will say to those who oppose us one day, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we thank you, Father. And we recognize that you ultimately accomplished this at the cross, where our sins were paid for by your Son. And so, Lord, with hope, we look to him and anticipate the day that we will gather around your throne together, singing praise to the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.